following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I haven't been to very many fancy birthday parties. But imagine you get invited to a fancy birthday party. I mean, like at the White House or Buckingham Palace or something like that. A royal birthday party. Well, it's the kind of party that you wear your very best clothes to attend. But why do you dress up for such a party? What makes it fancy? Do you, do you dress up in order to honor the birthday boy or girl? to honor the king's daughter or son or the, the president's wife or whatever the case may be? Or do you dress up in order to impress everyone who will be there with just how fashionable you are, just how good your taste is? And then when you get to the party, you end up talking to all of your closest friends who also happen to be there. But, but, but why? Why do you talk to them? Do you talk to them because you enjoy talking to them? because you love them? Or do you talk to them so that they will think of you as the friendliest, nicest, coolest person at the fancy birthday party? These questions, they're not so much about behaviors as they are about motives, what's in our heart. And that's precisely what Christ is concerned about in chapter six of Matthew's gospel. He's announced the kingdom of heaven. He's described it and its citizens in chapters 4 and 5. And now Christ is building up his program for discipleship on the foundation of the description that he's already given us, as it were. He's taught his disciples that entrance into the kingdom of heaven, like the deliverance of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and out of exile in Babylon, that it's all of grace. That there's nothing they can do to earn entrance into the kingdom of heaven or to deserve it. Rather, it's a gift of God given to them. But that does not mean that heavenly kingdom citizens can live lives of wild abandon and license. Certainly, they cannot live lives of hypocrisy. Because their king, much more than George Orwell's big brother, can see everything, even down into the depths of their hearts. Rather, followers of Christ must live lives of much more profound, surpassing, superabundant righteousness, much more than the scribes or the Pharisees who continually set themselves up as teachers in Israel and against the teachings of Christ. Indeed, what Christ teaches his disciples is that the law of God, the law of love, the law of the kingdom of heaven applies to the deepest parts of a man's soul, right down to his very heart where no other man can see. His thoughts, his desires, his affections, his dispositions, his inmost being, who he is in secret, just as much as who he is when other people can see what he's doing. And Christ teaches here in chapter 6 that our hearts must be sincerely invested in glorifying God in these three 
most important or at least most common practices of religious devotion, and I would say in every world culture, but especially in first century Judaism. But we'll see. Every culture and religion practices these three things, namely giving, giving of alms, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Giving, prayer, and fasting. And the theme verse is right there in verse 1. It's plain as day for us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So having considered gracious giving last time a few weeks ago, I think maybe three weeks ago, we move on tonight to powerful prayer. Christ gives us a paradigm or picture of powerful prayer. And what he teaches us, to put it positively here, is that Christians pray for the good of their souls to the glory of God. Christians pray for the good of their souls to the glory of God. And he gives us two aspects of powerful Christian prayer. What it means to pray as a Christian and to pray with power from on high. The first is the gracious reward of Christian prayer, pictured for us in verses 5 and 6. The gracious reward. And then, secondly, the glorious reality of Christian prayer in verses 7 and 8. So we have the gracious reward and the glorious reality. And the way he sets this up for us, because remember, the Sermon on the Mount is a wisdom discourse. He's giving teaching about wisdom. He sets it up as a contrast, much like what we see in the Proverbs. He gives us a false way, the way of foolishness, which has no good reward. And then he gives us the true way, the way of wisdom, the way of righteousness, kingdom, uh, kingdom of heaven living. And that is what we're focusing on tonight. So first, let's consider the gracious reward of Christian prayer in verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So he starts with the false way of prayer. But notice how these first opening words are framed. He says, when you pray. We could also translate this as whenever you pray. Christ assumes that his followers will pray. He's introducing a new kingdom to them. And he's calling out of the hypocritical false kingdom of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders in Israel, but he's assuming that they will continue to be people of prayer, which was as much a command in ancient Israel as it is even in the kingdom of heaven. So just as they were taught to pray as little Christian boys and girls, or little Jewish boys and girls, so as Christian men and women, they will continue to pray and to pray regularly. Prayer is to the Christian what breathing is to the long-distance runner. Not only do you just do it, but you do it in a very focused, regular, disciplined manner in order to finish the race. Didn't we see a picture of this in Daniel's life? That come what may, whatever the marathon brings him, whatever ups and downs he went through, he continued to pray, as was his practice, three times daily in his room, making petitions, supplications, and giving thanks to God. And Westminster Shorter Catechism 98, which we recited together, tells us what we do in prayer, namely offering up our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will and so on, 
But what is prayer in essence? As I've already mentioned earlier in the service, it is personal communion with God. So what's the point in Daniel chapter 6? How was Daniel faithful to God? He kept the relationship alive. He didn't allow even a king's order or command to interrupt his relationship with the Lord for 30 days. No, the Christian is committed, expected by Christ, to seek for communion with God in private and in public. And here's the sobering reality, though. And the sobering reality suggested by the fact that Jesus begins with, with highlighting something faulty, as we'll see. There's both a God-honoring way to pray, but also a sinful way to pray. That is, when we enter our prayer closets, when we get down onto our knees to pray, when we stand in a worship service to pray together, when we come here on Wednesday nights or Sunday evenings, whatever the case may be, morning or evening, noon or night, we can bring our sin into the very presence of God, to put it in that way. Christ must instruct us, not just his disciples, but us, in how to pray, because we are prone, even as believers, to pray wrongly, to pray sinfully and selfishly. Let's look at how. So starting here, Christ tells his disciples not to pray like the hypocrites who had set themselves up as teachers in Israel, who were very well-known, who were the superstars of the religious life of the nation. His statement here uh, in the New, New American Standard doesn't really bring it out, but it's, it's as if he says, whenever you pray, thou shalt not be like the hypocrites. He frames it in the very same language, the same grammar as he would if he was quoting Old Testament commandments. Christ is giving a solemn, sober, serious commandment. Thou shalt not be like the hypocrites. These hypocrites, we are told, they loved to stand and pray where people could notice their intense spirituality, where they could be seen and applauded and commended by men for their faith and their religious activity. You know, the standing was not a problem, or else Dr. Piper and I wouldn't set up our worship services for us to stand so much in prayer. And we see in Mark chapter 11 and also in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus depicts standing as a very normal posture for prayer. We also see in Daniel 6 that kneeling is a good posture for prayer. And the, the location isn't really the problem here either, for it's totally allowable to pray in the synagogue. Jesus does it on numerous occasions in his ministry, and there's nothing wrong with praying out in public or even out on the street if that's where you're, you're caught at the appointed time for prayer. But what Christ is really targeting here, just as I was in my opening illustration, is the motive for prayer. Why? Why were they praying on at the corner of the broad uh, thoroughfares and streets, the plazas of their cities. Why were they getting up into the front of the synagogues, in the front of the temple, like the Pharisee in the, um, in, in the parable in Luke 18? Why are they doing those things? To be seen by men. They're hypocrites. They're not doing it for love of God, but to be seen by others. And that is the problem. But my friends, brothers and sisters, hypocrisy it's not just a Pharisee's problem. I look out here, I don't see any Pharisees here, and yet we have these words for us. Though we don't subscribe to the sect of the Pharisees, 
this hypocrisy issue is as much our problem as it was theirs. This problem is not one of praying in public. It's not even one of praying when people know you're praying. That's unavoidable. The hypocrisy problem is a why problem, much more than it is a what problem. Why do you pray? Do you pray for yourself and your own glory? Is that why your pastors get up here up front and lead you in prayer to make ourselves look good? We have to examine our own hearts. And you seminary students will have to do that as you enter into the ministry or as you perform the functions of your internship and you get in front of God's people and pray. You have to ask, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for love of God? Or am I doing this for the praise and applause of men? Do you pray for yourself or for God? For your glory or His glory? That's the question we need to wrestle with here. Do you pray in order to impress people with how good a Christian you are? Or do you pray, public or private, outside or inside, wherever, with your family, by yourself, whatever the case may be, do you pray to be with God so that you might enjoy Him, delight in Him, and become more like Jesus through contact with Him in this means of grace? Just as the wages of sin is death, we're told in Romans chapter 6, so too the wages or reward of the hypocrites' self-centered praying for the notice of men is to be seen by men. It's a worldly, it's a worthless reward. Jesus says, they have their reward in full. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And that reward is not lasting. It will pass away. It's like like a bouquet of weeds. You wouldn't give that to your mother, would you? They would wilt away and die. They wouldn't even look good in the middle of it. It'd be like a a clump of grass clippings in just a a couple of days' time that turns basically into dust and chaff. Or to put it, to draw from a biblical picture, it's like the fig leaves that Adam and Eve sewed together to cover their shame. It's of no lasting value. Those fig leaves wilted away and did no good for them just within a matter of a day or two. It will wither away, this reward that Christ says is given to the hypocrites, this praise of man. But Christ promises a lasting reward in verse 6 for all those who pray seeking for God's grace and glory. Let's consider this reward that he maps for us. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In verse 6, Christ shifts from addressing his disciples in the plural to addressing them in the singular. And he's individually addressing his disciples using this singular person pronoun, you, as in you, David, you, Judah, you, Zach, you, Joseph, you, Rick, you, Mindy, you, Jocelyn. He's addressing you individually. And he's outlining a familiar picture for you then, of secret heart communion with God, secret prayer, what evangelicals frequently call the prayer closet. He emphasizes, though, in this secret place, the presence of God, for God is everywhere. He's all-seeing, to use the fancy term. He's omnipresent. He is your Father who is in the secret, and your Father who sees what is done 
in this secret. Perhaps Christ is drawing here from Isaiah 26, verse 20, where God calls out to his people as, as, a, as a pleading husband calling back his wife, calling out to them, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course, implying, Hide with me your refuge. Seek me. Now, this is how you were to approach God in prayer as a personal interaction, a transaction between you and the Almighty, the Most High God. Whenever you pray, whether you're in public or in private, remember, you are talking to God. You're talking to someone with whom you have a personal relationship, someone who has a personal claim on you and a personal interest in your life. You're not putting on a performance for other people. You're talking to someone who loves you and whom you love. The issue is not that you can never pray in public or with other people. Not at all. Christ is about to give us a model for prayer in the Lord's Prayer that, that begins with the word our. So obviously we will pray together in groups of people. He himself prays on numerous occasions in synagogues, in public, outside, with his disciples, in addition to going away by himself, which was also noticed and recorded for us by other people, by the way. Indeed, I think the clearest picture of the benefit that praying with other people, either in a worship service or not, is given to us in John eleven forty two, where Jesus prays. In the hearing of others, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. So there is something to be said for praying in public and together in a way that edifies the brethren. Jesus clearly does not prohibit praying in public. I, I want to make that point very emphatically. And he does not prohibit praying when other people know you're praying. It's okay to say, you know, I'm actually spending a day in prayer. I can't meet with you that day. That's fine. But what he does prohibit is play acting, performance, art, or hypocrisy in prayer. That's what he prohibits. That can be done in private just as surely as it can be done in public. 900 years ago, uh, an Eastern church father, medieval church father, Theophylact of Orid, uh, which is in Macedonia, he actually put this well in his commentary on Matthew. He said, should I not then pray in church? Indeed I should, but with a right mind and not for show. For it is not the place which harms prayer, but the manner and intent with which we pray. For many who pray in secret do so to impress others. And Martin Lloyd-Jones gives the illustration, it's, it's a it's a potent one of a man. Uh, he was reading a biography of a man who was famous in the early 20th century. I don't even know who it was. And it was said of this man that he was so fervent in prayer that he would walk through the hallways of his house. And before going from one room to the next, he would fall onto the ground in a great show of emotion and cry out to God in prayer and intercede right in the middle of the hallways where everyone could see him. Was he wrong in that? Only the Lord knows the heart. But the point that Lloyd-Jones made and the point that I made here is it's not so much the place, but the intent. You can even pray in your home in a way that seeks to impress others. Well, in contrast to this powerless, performative prayer, Christ calls us to powerful, personal 
communion that seeks for God's grace. Such prayer will indeed receive that for which it seeks. Look what he says. He says um, in verse 6, Your Father who sees what is done in the secret will reward you. Again, in the King James supplies the following words, in the open, in the open. Seek for God's grace and you shall find it. Didn't Daniel find it? He was seeking for God's grace. And he was rewarded, not just with uh, a night of safety in the lion's den, but he was vindicated in the destruction of the satraps and the commissioners and the governors and the prefects of ancient Persia. He was rewarded by this great God-glorifying declaration. We could confess the words of Darius, and here is our confession of faith, couldn't we? That was spread out to all the empire. Indeed, he was rewarded in the open for his secret, true, sincere piety in prayer. So, I ask the question again, why do you pray? Do you pray for the vain and passing attention of men? Or do you pray for the grace and glory of God? Fathers and mothers, you need to examine yourselves and put your prayer life to this test. Do you pray purely to give your children an example? Or do you pray in order to receive grace from God with or without your children. Boys and girls, you need to test your own prayer life with this question. Do you pray purely to make mommy and daddy happy and proud of you? Or do you pray in order to be with God and to glorify Him, to receive grace from Him in prayer as a child of the Most High? And all of us, Whatever our station in life is, whether we have children in the home or not, whether we pray out loud with others or we keep silent when we're in prayer meetings, whatever the case may be, we need to answer this question. Why do we pray? Why do we show up? Why do we open our mouths? Do we do it to impress others? Or do we do it to meaningfully, personally, and powerfully connect with our Father through Christ His Son? Indeed, it is by the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross of Calvary that we have gained access to this throne of grace. It is by our elder brother, Jesus Christ, that we are called sons of God and can approach him as adopted sons and daughters with the spirit of adoption crying out for our father, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. And now this brings us to verses 7 and 8 which outline for us the glorious reality of Christian prayer. The glorious reality of Christian prayer. And just as Christ did in setting forth the gracious reward of Christian prayer, namely God's grace and His glory in the world, Christ begins now with a warning in verse 7 and then proceeds to a glorious promise. First, He sets before us the danger of false prayer that seeks to manipulate God. Notice what He says here. And when you are praying, he switches back to the plural, interestingly, do not use meaningless repetition or vain babbling as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. You know, Christ does not condemn repetition. It's actually unfortunate how the King James and the New American Standard translate this, this unique word that's found only here in Matthew 6 and then in, in a commentary in the 7th century or something. It's a very unique Greek word. Um, but it's not so much repetition 
as it is vain or meaningless babbling, which can be repetitious words or forms or what have you. Here are some examples of that. In Buddhism, they have a prayer wheel. They pin their prayers on the wheel, they spin the wheel, and that's supposed to replace actually praying to their god or reality. In other pagan religions, they put their prayers on flags, and they put them out in a field. And as the wind blows a flag, that's supposed to be spreading their prayers abroad, replacing time spent in prayer. Obviously, that's so vain and materialistic and mechanistic. Prayer is not like a factory. It's not a machine that we just plug in inputs and expect outputs from some uh, heartless, impersonal process. Well, if any of you have a Roman Catholic background, can't praying the rosary be like that? You go through the beads one by one. It just becomes this vain repetition of words that you have no real attachment to or reciting the Hail Mary or the Our Father or whatever the case may be. Certainly praying to saints is vain, but those repetitious prayers. In old Roman Catholicism, they would pray in Latin, but they have no understanding of what it was they were saying, most of the people, and that's certainly vain and repetitious. And we see that in Islam where I have many friends from Pakistan and from India and, and, and from other non-Arabic speaking but predominantly Muslim nations, they memorize and recite the entire Quran, turning it over as a prayer, never understanding what they're saying because they don't know Arabic. They just know what it sounds like. Certainly that is vain and repetitious prayer in unintelligible forms. Brothers and sisters, God is not the God of those without understanding. God seeks for us to be engaged at the level of the mind and to understand what it is we're doing when we're transacting with Him. But even in our own circles, in Christianity, we have familiar examples, don't we? Formalism in prayer. You go to a very liberal Episcopalian church, and they might use the old prayer book. But do they actually believe what it is they're turning over to God as prayers? If, if as soon as the minister gets up, he or she gives a homily that completely desecrates everything that's contained in the prayer book? No, it's just formalism. They're just following a pattern. And even though they might understand what the words mean, they're not engaged at the level of the heart. Or perhaps in evangelicalism. Have you ever been in a worship service where the worship leader, while he's tuning his guitar so as to fill up the time, says, Oh, Father God, we just praise you and bless you for this evening of worship, and we love you so much that you died on the cross for us, da, 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 just to fill in some time while he's doing something else. Brothers and sisters, this is not the way. Christ condemns this vain repetition, this meaningless turning over of words, intelligible or not, to God in prayer. Well, the biblical example of this is found par excellence in 1 Kings 18, where the prophets of Baal spent hours repeating themselves to try to get their false god's attention. And then Elijah, the prophet of God, gets up, and what does he do? He prays a short, punchy, effectual prayer to the one true and living God. And what happens? Fire comes down, consumes the whole sacrifice, and burns up the stones and the water around it as well. What was the difference? See, not only did Elijah pray to the one living and true God, but he did so according to God's will and for God's glory. He didn't do it in a superstitious way. He didn't do it treating prayer like so many magical incantations. He did it sincerely communing with someone he knew existed and would hear him. 
according to that someone's expressed design in his word. So Christ sets before us in the danger of false prayer, the prayer like the heathen nations, the prayer of the Gentiles, vain, meaningless repetition. But then he gives us in verse 8 this reality of Christian prayer that seeks to glorify God. Look what it says. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The reality of Christian prayer that seeks to glorify God is that it is the prayer of the renewed soul. It is the prayer of reborn and spiritually adopted men and women that has tasted and seen, or who have tasted and seen, that God indeed is good, and He is a good God to His children. Such prayer is heard by God, we know from Psalm 65, such prayer is received by God, we know from various points in Scripture, and mysteriously and supernaturally, this prayer is acted upon by God, who knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, you might be lulled into a subtle deception from the second half of verse 8 if you just took that out of context, that prayer is ultimately unnecessary because God knows what I need before I ask Him, so why do I have to ask Him for anything? He's going to provide for His people. That's, that's foolishness. In fact, you'd be making two grievous mistakes, which I will point out to you to highlight the glorious reality that Christ is setting before us. First, you'd be forgetting the words of James 4, 2, and 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Prayer is indeed God's ordained means of accomplishing His will in the world. Yes, God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, but He's ordained the ends as well as the means. That is, He has ordained for you to pray. He has ordained for you to come to Him. Father, through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of adoption, crying out to Him as a Father for help, for aid, giving Him glory, ascribing to Him all majesty and splendor and wonder and praise. He has ordained this as the lifeblood of living Christianity. Again, this is your breath as a Christian is to pray. And we must pray according to God's promises his character, his commandments, with him at the center of it all, pushing ourselves out of the way, pushing other people out of the way, and focusing intently upon the fact that he is on his throne, not just governing all the cosmos, but hearing your prayers, which arise to him as incense. More fundamentally, though, the second mistake you'd be making is you'd be forgetting the very nature and purpose of prayer as we've been developing it and discussing it this evening. Prayer is essentially communion with God. We pray not to inform God of what it is we need, because He already knows, but to offer up these desires and needs of ours unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. We pray because we want to be with God. What is a prayerless Christian? It's an oxymoron. It's a Christian who doesn't want to be with his God, his Savior, his chief and highest delight and joy. 
There's no such thing as a prayerless Christian. Yes, I know. We come here tonight, and many of us are very weak in prayer, aren't we? We wish we spent more time in prayer. We wish we knew what to say in prayer. We wish we wanted to pray. We want to want to pray more than we do. And brother and sister, I wish to encourage you, the way is open. Christ has made the way for you. Go. Go to the throne. And perhaps you're here this evening, and particularly you boys and girls, and you're thinking, but prayer's boring. I've never wanted to pray. Is something wrong with me? Well, I would encourage you to do this. Ask God very simply, Lord, teach me to pray. The Lord's Prayer is published in two places, here in Matthew 6, as we'll see in subsequent weeks, but also in Luke's Gospel. And why does Jesus share the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel? Because the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray and teach us how to pray. Ask God, and He's faithful to give to you this desire for a desire to pray. We pray to invest in our relationship with Him, to be with our Father through Christ His Son, and to receive from Him what we need for faith and godliness. Boys and girls, do you like spending time with your dad? Are you sad when he's away at work? Or, or boys and girls, are you, are you sad when you're not with your mom? Don't you wish you could spend more time with your mother even when you're away from her? You go away with your grandparents for a few nights and you don't see either of your parents. And then you come home and you say, oh, it's so great to see you again. Or perhaps there's somebody else in your life whom you love. You look forward. Sundays when you'll see Mr. and Mrs. Long or you'll see Mr. and Mrs. Marcus or the Colvins or the Groffs or whoever or even Dr. Piper and you run up with a big smile on your face say, it's great to see you or your friends whom you play with. You know that feeling of, of longing to be with somebody else? Longing to be with someone you love? That's what Christ is seeking to inspire and give to his disciples a longing to be with God. Indeed, our longing for prayer is a longing to be with God. We go to the party, not to impress people, but to be with and to celebrate the person for whom the party is thrown. We go in our Sunday best to church, not simply to show up and to get a pat on the back from someone or to get somebody's approval, but we go to honor the Lord and to worship Him and to glorify Him. We're talking about motives. We're talking about realities. Realities that must come down from above. I've told you that what Christ teaches in these two prohibitions, in these two wisdom sayings, is that Christians, as opposed to pagans and Pharisees, Christians pray for the good of their souls to the glory of God. They don't pray for their material advancement in this world. They pray for the good of their souls, their spirits. They don't pray for the glory of themselves. They pray to the glory of God, God in heaven. And Christ outlines the danger, but he also outlines the reward. And one point I wish to make here in conclusion. This reward is not some kind of merit. It's not something that you earn it's not something that is your due. It is a graciously given reward. It's a reward of God's grace. And you experience such grace only in communion with Him. And Christ has made the way by His death and resurrection. And the Spirit sets within us 
hearts throbbing with love for God the Father, for having been adopted and brought into his kingdom and seated around his table. And this is the gospel. Do you understand it? Have you gripped it in your hearts? Do you want to be with God? Christian, why do you pray? Let's stand together for prayer now as we seek the Spirit's help in the application of this word to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.